we can do some terrific climate forecasting that my colleagues and I never thought was possible 50 years ago. Welcome to 100 Climate Conversations and thank you so much for joining us. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the ancestral homelands upon which we are recording today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We respect their elders, past and present, and recognise their continuous connection to country. Today is number 85 of 100 conversations happening every Friday. Now, the series presents 100 visionary Australians that are taking positive action to respond to the most critical issue of our time, climate change. We are recording live today in the boiler hall of the Powerhouse Museum. And before it was the museum, this space was the Ultimo power station. It was built in 1899 and supplied coal-powered electricity to Sydney's tram system. Uh, and that went through into the 1960s. In the context of this architectural artifact, we shift our focus away from that coal-powered past forward to the innovations of the net zero revolution. My name's Nate Byrne. Uh, I am a meteorologist, oceanographer, uh, science communicator, former naval officer, and current ABC News Breakfast weather presenter. Neville Nichols has been studying the El Nino Southern Oscillation Cycle, a cyclic weather pattern that causes droughts and flooding in Australia and elsewhere. He's been doing it for over 40 years. Now Emeritus Professor based in the School of Earth, Atmosphere and Environment at Monash University, he continues to research how and why the climate is changing, as well as designing systems to improve our ability to forecast and to cope with droughts, bushfires, heat waves, and other climate events. We are so thrilled. I am so thrilled to have him here today. Please join me in making Neville very welcome. I can't wait to get all nerdy with you. Let's, let's set the scene, though. Um, you've been what, 50 years plus working in uh, weather and climate. Uh, what sparked for you what would become a lifelong interest and dedication to science? It was pretty random. One of my aunts gave me a book about British animals when, for my eighth birthday. And it was full of stuff that scientists, uh, biologists and ecologists had found about British animals. It seems a bizarre thing to, to be reading in, in Melbourne. Um, but that sparked my interest. So from then on, I always wanted to be a scientist. I went to high school, decided I didn't want to be a biologist because that involved in those days cutting up things and uh, a bit too much blood. Mm -hmm. um, and I got attracted to physics and maths, went to... Monash University, did a physics degree, and then even more randomly, I realised, what am I going to do with my life? I like physics, I like maths, and meteorology is something you do with physics and maths. So I applied, became a, went to the Bureau of Meteorology as, to do the forecasting course, and at the end of that year, they put me into research. And so I've never done a weather forecast, despite being a trained forecaster, 
for which my family thinks Australia should be grateful um, <laughs> because they, they still don't think that I'm a good forecaster after 50 years of it. So. I think that's interesting. I uh, Very similarly, uh, you know, less maths, more physics in, mm. in my start. Um, I sh even though I did biophysics to start, um, squishy science, didn't really like it much. I mm. like the hard stuff. But then when you get into weather, it's very squishy, isn't it? A lot of... <laughs> fuzz around the edges. Um, okay, so they put you in research. Talk to me about your earliest research. I'm thinking Papua New Guinea and drought. Yeah, 1972. Papua New Guinea, which had been a protectorate of Australia, was about to become fully independent and was hit by a severe drought in 1972. And I was the youngest member of a very small team of meteorologists in my research who was told, find out what's causing it, what's going on, and we wrote a report, it was published at the end of the, that year, which basically said, there's a drought because it's not raining. It's not raining because there's no clouds. We don't know much else. The following year, and it's interesting that it took me a long, uh, six months or more to find this out, I realised it had been an El Nino that year. And there'd been a lot of research about El Ninos and this phenomenon called the Southern Oscillation at that stage. So I went back and looked and realised that most nearly all Papua New Guinea droughts are associated with El Nino, occur in El Ninos. It's an incredibly strong relationship. It's much stronger than a relationship with Australian droughts, for instance. And wrote a report on that. That was in 1973. So that was my first El Nino paper. So that's, yeah, 50 years ago. And I'm still researching El Nino now. Um, it's a wonderful phenomenon. causes a lot of distress, but from a scientific nerdy point of view, it's a wonderful phenomenon to make your research. Can you explain to us what the El Nino Southern Oscillation Cycle actually is? Well, what is it? El Nino, La Nina. Okay, it's a natural climate phenomenon. It's been going on for many, many hundreds, probably many thousands of years at least. It's a phenomenon where you get, it is an oscillation. It's not a very strict oscillation like a, a clock or anything like that, but a, a year that we call an, an El Nino, the El Nino would typically start in March and April, build to a peak around the end of a calendar year, and then generally it'll collapse around March or April the following year. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes it's followed by the opposite phase, the La Nina. So the El Nino phase has warmer than normal temperatures in the central and eastern equatorial Pacific. La Nina has cooler than normal temperatures in, in the central and eastern Pacific. Australia, Papua New Guinea, Indonesia have droughts in the El Nino part of the cycle and we tend to have flooding rains in the La Nina cycle. As a result of, of the El Nino Southern Oscillation phenomena, the countries that, like Australia, that are affected by it really are all lands of droughts and flooding rains. You know, Australia is a land of droughts and flooding rains because of El Nino Southern Oscillation, which I'm going to call ENSO from now on yeah, because otherwise we'll run out of time in this interview. <laughs> so ENSO amplifies rainfall variability in the areas that it has a major impact on. Um, there are some essential parts to the ENSO, which I started looking at back in the 1970s. One is there's some predictability associated with it. So you've probably heard 
that through this year, 2023, from several months ago, people have been suggesting we're building into an El Nino. So there's predictability already and it, and it has started to increase in amplitude, the El Nino, as we've gone over the last few months. And that's fairly typical from about March, April, May, June. You can predict what, how it's going to evolve and that means we can predict things that are associated with it later in the year. So that's a really critical part from a scientific point of view as well as from a societal point of view, why is that predictability there at that time of year from about May through to about February the following year? And why doesn't it occur at the other time of year? Why can't we predict in January what's going to happen in July, but in July we can predict what's going to happen in the following January? It's, it's a fascinating scientific problem, which I spent several years in the 70s and early 80s thinking about and modelling we can do some terrific climate forecasting that my colleagues and I never thought was possible 50 years ago, 60 years ago. We can forecast how active a tropical cyclone season is going to be months in advance and not with perfect skill but pretty good skill and it's useful and uh, that's an amazing thing. We can forecast how wet the wet season is going to be. We can say when the wet season in Northern Australia will actually start with useful skill. It's useful for graziers, uh, useful for anybody who relies on rainfall. I think very few people understand how big a problem, as in a, as in a mathematical problem, uh, it is to solve the atmosphere as a, as a whole. Like the, the fact that we can do a few days is incredible, months in advance. When it comes to El Nino, What's the driving force here? Like, I know how to describe what El Nino looks like and what La Nina looks like and what effects it's going to have. But what's causing, driving that oscillation? It's interaction between the ocean and the atmosphere. And I think that the drivers are mainly north of Australia. But the effect, you see, is mainly over in the central and eastern equatorial Pacific. But that's because there's a phenomenon called Kelvin waves, which are not like waves you see on the beach, but, that, but they're waves in the ocean that are triggered by changes in wind. And they travel from the West Pacific to the East Pacific and they affect the upwelling of cold water from below, which tends to keep that part of the ocean cooler than normal. The Kelvin waves go over and disrupt that and the ocean warms. So that's the essential part. It's, and, and so the whole thing is driven by this tightly knit interaction between the ocean and the atmosphere. So it's different to the day-to-day -day weather that we see. And as a result of it, the predictability is, is, is vastly different. To do a five-day forecast for you to get up and talk about weather five days ahead, we basically need weather information across the entire world in incredible detail to get that sort of forecast. To forecast things associated with the El Nino Southern Oscillation, we basically need one number. Darwin pressure alone, averaged over a month, gives us a terrific predictor of how the, how the climate is going to evolve. Similarly, we could just use the sea surface temperatures in the Eastern Pacific 
they again a terrific predictor of this large scale sort of how much rainfall are we going to get in Papua New Guinea and Eastern Australia, just with one number. It's such a, it's such a mind-blowing difference that meteorologists, and, and you and I are both meteorologists, even though I've evolved into a climate scientist, it's really hard to get our heads around. And that was one of the reasons it's taken us so long to actually start doing forecasts based on El Nino, because none of us believe it could be at all possible. Um, but it's just a different system. You attended one of, if not the first conference exploring climate change in Australia in 1987. What was discussed there? And, and also, how was it received in the world of meteorology? Yeah, it, it was the first attempt anywhere in the world to actually get a whole lot of people, not just strict climate scientists together, but a lot of other scientists, to try to get them to work out for their particular speciality how much is climate change likely to affect that particular area? People from water resources, people from agriculture, from human health. So it was, a, it was, it was arranged by Dr. Graham Pierman of CSIRO and his colleague Barry Piddick, also from, from CSIRO, and they came up with a scenario of what climate change, driven by fossil fuel burning, basically, might look like um, by about 2030, something like that. And just ask these other specialists, is that going to be a big issue for you? And it's interesting that many of the people thought, we can probably handle that sort of climate change. Some people can't. Uh, there, there were some specialties that there was uh, considerable concern about. But it was the first, I think it was the first one that really set a whole lot of people working on the problem, not just a handful of climate scientists, but people across all sorts of specialties. There was a, a conference at more than a decade earlier at Monash in 1975, and it was about climate. At the time, the climate, if anything, had been cooling. But at that time also, the first of models of what emissions of carbon dioxide would do to the climate had started to appear. And again, Graham Pierman was at that conference and this 1975 conference said, we're likely to get half a degree warming by the end of the century. That is by the end of last century, by the year 2000. What did we get? We got half a degree warming in global temperature and we've got another half a degree ever since. So the predictions that were being made of climate change back in 19, about 1970, 1975, have been spot on. Um, and that, as you know, how do you check science? You check science by and hypotheses by making predictions and checking whether those predictions come true, basically. And a forecast like that at a time that the world, if anything, was cooling, it was a brave forecast and it's proven to be right and it's one of the big reasons why we're so certain that fossil fuel burning and carbon dioxide emissions and methane emissions are driving the, the climate change that we see. Especially since now we have so much more information to inform that prediction uh, than you had available then. Mm -hmm. So climate is changing. We've got this 
climatological cycle of El Nino and La Nina, how is one influencing the other? I ran an international workshop in 1994 on exactly that question. How will the El Nino be affected by global warming? I think we still don't know the answer. It, will, it certainly is affecting it. It's probably disrupting our, the predictability we've got in the natural El Nino, La Nina cycle. It's probably disrupting it. And I, I can give an example from this year. The snow season's been quite bad thus far uh, in 2023 in, in Australia. It's been warm all over the world, extremely warm. The oceans are warm. Now, during an El Nino, at this time of year in, in an El Nino, the oceans around Australia are normally quite cold, but they're warm. And some of that is just due to the long, slow warming, heating of the, of the world that we've seen due to fossil fuel uh, burning. So that disrupts at least the way we, we predict things associated with El Nino. We think it's also disrupting the climate and weather impacts of the El Nino. But gee, it needs a lot more work to nut that out. When we came up with uh, understanding of the atmosphere and how it interacts uh, and, and the maths behind it all that allows us to forecast, that was based on a, uh, an idea of this is what the atmosphere looks like in a relatively stable state. A bit of natural variability in the background, but yeah, cool. But now we've got this, this big change pushing everything in a certain direction. How is climate change affecting our ability to forecast? Yeah, one really important way is if, if the predictability, at least of, of the natural climate variability, is related, we were talking about using symbol, single indices of that, and, and one of the obvious ones is the sea surface temperature in the central and eastern Pacific. Mm. If it's cold, it's a La Nina. If it's warm, it's an El Nino. But if on top of that, sort of natural variability, you've got this um, unstoppable warming, then every year is warm. And you've got to take that into account when you come up with your definition of what's a threshold to be an El Nino. If, you've, if everything is now warm, you're likely to say that every year is an El Nino if, if you're not careful, which doesn't help us at all. So that's a really crudest point. It's, it's just us diagnosing what's going on. But Global warming is affecting every aspect of the weather and climate now. We may not know exactly how it's happening, but it has to be. Like the warming of a degree in the last um, 50 years is significant. And you, you plot that and you look at the natural variations, the natural variations are about 0.2 degrees and the warming is about one degree. So the natural variations now look tiny compared to the warming that we've imposed on the situation. It has to be having an effect on storms that bring uh, rain and storms that bring snow, how hot it's going to be in Sydney today. Everything has to be being affected by that progressive, continuous warming that we're seeing because it's now quite big in terms of the natural variability. Are we missing 
the, the ability to predict things because we haven't taken this change into account so far? Or are we, are we staying up to date? I, I think it's causing us problems. Mm. I don't think they're insurmountable. And I think the predictability in the system is still going to be there. The natural variability, I'm pretty sure, will continue to operate pretty much in the way it has in the past, as long as we can get over this problem that even just the threshold problem. And there will be disruption due to the, the global warming, but in our predictability, in the way we can predict things. But I don't think it's going to stop it completely. It's not, it's not going to swamp it completely. It'll still be useful in the future, and I hope, hope it will because I think that's one of the things that gives me hope that we can deal with the climate change problem. I find often um, talking to people about climate, uh, people get, get down and get mm. depressed and feel like we're not doing enough and we haven't got a, a trajectory where we can get out of this mm. with our skins. But I guess there, there are two different versions of that world, right? There, there's one where life doesn't look that much different from now uh, and then another where it looks wildly different. We're, we're alive and surviving, but um, maybe not everything else is. And, and, and maybe the, the you know, summer becomes, and increasingly, in fact, is already becoming increasingly a, a time to survive mm. um, around large parts of the world. And actually, on heat waves, um, the Bureau is always saying that the heat waves are the most deadly extreme weather or severe weather in Australia. Mm. Um, but a lot of that's hidden. And you've done work with heat wave warning mm. systems. How important is that going to be going on into the future? Yeah, I think those sort of systems are, are, are really critical, particularly in, in cities like Sydney and Melbourne where we get a few days of really extreme temperatures. Knowing that, because the Bureau of Meteorology makes such wonderful forecasts nowadays, um, their forecasts... I'm not sure everybody knows this. A forecast for Melbourne temperature, for instance, by the Bureau of Meteorology, seven days in advance now are better than the one-day-ahead forecast was when I started the career. Now, none of that has anything to do with me. It has certainly not been my influence, possibly not even your influence. Um, but it's a, an amazing change, and it means that we can get people to prepare. So, yeah, so we built this first heat alert system for Melbourne back in 2008. And it was there for that heat wave where 500 people died. It was very rudimentary and it became very obvious that the big missing link was not so much for science. The science is very easy to do really nowadays and took us not too many days to actually do the science. But it's the translation of that science to make sure people react the right way. So we know the vulnerable people, we know the elderly, people who are immunocompromised, people on various drugs, people are homeless, and we know that they're the people we've got to get the message to and we've got to get them to do certain things. But they shouldn't die of a heat wave in a country like Australia because if you keep people hydrated and cool for just those couple of days, then they're fine and they will be fine and you'll, you'll, you will avoid premature deaths. So systems like that, really important. And yeah, most cities around the world 
now have some sort of system. But there are ways we can do it. I, I was just reading about the guy who does this in Phoenix in Arizona, mm. and he maintains that they will be able to stop all heat-related deaths by re-engineering the city in various ways, greening it, doing all sorts of things. So again, it's, it's, a, it, it's something that needs to be done and needs to be done in many parts of the world. Some parts of the world it's harder to do than others. And if we can do that, then yeah, life would look different in summer. We were you talking before about would it look very, would it look very different? We um, could be, but it could still be good. But again, I don't want to minimise the problems. Like we've, we've started acting on it too late. We're not acting strongly enough. As a result of that, we are going to lose parts of the environment that we, we wouldn't have if, for instance, Australia had been more upfront and, and more accepting of a science 25 years ago when Kyoto Protocol was being negotiated. If we had been a bit more aggressive and save a world, we, ha we have to do this and we will do this and take a lead, we would be in a better position now. And at various times, I've become really quite depressed. For, during the fire season of 2019-20, I was extremely depressed because we knew what was coming. We knew what was coming on, on a, because of a natural cycle, but also because the warming had done things already that we knew. And we still couldn't get politicians to do things. The emergency managers knew, were on board. They knew what was coming. We still didn't do that. So the source of my depression, apart from the magnitude of that issue itself, was have I, was it my fault? Did I not do enough? When Black Saturday hit in 2009, I wrote a report for Royal Commission saying the weather and climate was unprecedented that led to those fires. The Commission dismissed that, that description of it, unprecedented. Um, they said we'd had fires before, we'd had hot days before, but we'd had droughts before. But uh, my point was that we'd not seen anything like we had. So it was unprecedented. Should I have jumped up and down more and complained and gone to more out to the media if I'd done that? So, yeah, so 2019-20 was during the fire season was a pretty depressing time for me. Uh, not, and I don't want to pretend that, its impact on me was in, in any way important compared to the people who were physically and uh, emotionally really affected by the direct uh, impact of the fires. I just say it to point out that I've not always been optimistic about climate, but I think the tide has turned. I, I think we can do we can do this, and I think everybody's on nearly everybody's on board. And we will do it and we have to do it. It is obviously a global situation that we're talking about, but let's talk globally about your work with the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. Uh, you've been involved since the mid-90s. Since 1990. Oh, since 1990. Since the first, the first, since the first report, I was a contributing author in the first report and that's how I got dragged into it is because the people writing it wanted someone to talk about how El Nino might be affected by global warming. And uh, I was about the only person who'd actually thought about it at that stage. 
I think. And so I, I wrote a paragraph which got cut down to a sentence or something like that. Um, and then in 1992, they updated that report. And by that time, I was a lead author. So I was one of, of five people looking at how the climate had been observed to change. And then by the second assessment, which was in the middle 90s, I was the coordinating lead author of that chapter. So I had five lead authors and 100 contributing authors. And I had to write a chapter within strict page limits with all of those and make sure they were all happy with the result. And it was a fascinating time because you think, oh, nowadays, you think, that's a pretty easy thing to do, isn't it? Let's get 100 people to get together, 105 people to get together and write a chapter, and we'll just do lots and lots of Zoom meetings and lots of interactions. Well, that, this was way, way, way back, and we communicated by fax. And <laughs> at one stage, one of my lead authors disappeared for a couple of months um, because he got malaria, and he went home to his home village to be cared for by his family and we couldn't communicate with him at all. It was just impossible. And you think times have changed, but it was, a, it was an interesting situation. And we were a paper-driven scientific society, organizations as well. So um, my lounge room for a whole year was taken over by piles of scientific papers because I couldn't fit them all into my office at work um, while we worked on these. So again, we don't do things like that now. And in some ways it's a lot easier than it was back then. We've all done group projects with five people, but here you're talking about a hundred, triple digits, yeah. and all with slightly different ideas and maybe motivations. Yeah, and the IPCC process itself is, is a fascinating process because not only do we have to get all of the scientists to agree, we eventually go to an approval meeting and there are representatives of typically 140 nations there and they're diplomats and all sorts of, of, of people who were there and politicians. We have to get consensus amongst them. They're happy with what we have said. We can't stray from the science. So you, you're in there and you've got diplomats and politicians here and in the back of your mind, you've got all of the scientists you've worked with for the last two, three years to get this report together. You don't want to break anything that they've said, but you have to express it in such a way that the politicians and diplomats will sign off on it. Mm. And it's a fascinating process and it's very time consuming, very stressful. But most of the time, it works. And um, I think the IPCC has contributed a lot, which is lucky because it's taken a lot of our time. <laughs> How has that, that process changed over the years? Is it easier now? Because I, I kind of get the feeling that maybe the scientists have a louder voice in the room. I think the acceptance of a report, once it's spread out, is, is a lot better than it used to be. People just didn't even know its existence, but it's become much more bureaucratic and there are many, many more rules about how it's put together. And that's, that's changed dramatically since 1990, where it was basically a group of scientists got together, wrote a report. They never thought there was gonna be a second one. 
Um, they thought this was just for one off. It's actually, I go back and I look at it now, I think it's a really good report um, that I had very little influence on at all, the first one in 1990. It's a very good, succinct report. They are now huge. Um, three working groups, each of them produced a report, each is a million words long. And it's, it's a lot, they are big to digest. They have a technical summary, then a summary for policy makers. It's difficult to get everything and to be certain that you've got everything right. Um, it's, it, yeah, the, the, the ticking off to make sure you can see a line of sight from the summary that goes to policy makers right back to the chapters that the scientists themselves wrote. It's part of a process which is quite challenging. Mm. Every time there's a release, I think this is the one I'm going to read um, <laughs> in entirety. <laughs> uh, I, I think this is probably how I'm going to burn my long service leave one day. <laughs> Let's sit down and just read one of these reports. Have you seen the work actually being translated into real policy and action on climate? I think I have. I have a particular perspective on climate change as a problem and a societal issue. And what I say next, I don't want people to misunderstand. Like, climate change is serious, it's caused by us, it's challenging to deal with. So I don't want to in any way let anybody think that what I'm gonna say minimizes that. But despite that, despite 50 years as a climate scientist, through most of my career, Climate scientists have been either ignored, abused, or just told to go away and laughed at. Like it, but despite that, and despite the seriousness of a problem, I'm actually an optimist. I think we will deal with this problem, and there are strong reasons why I think that. I've got very strong reasons. One is just a general belief that modern humans deal with very challenging problems. When I was born in 1950, globally, life expectancy was 46 years, globally. Now it's over 71 years. So in my lifetime, I've seen global life expectancy increase by more than 50%. That's pretty spectacular. Again, in 1950, 20% of all babies born globally would die before their fifth birthday. Now that number's down to 4%, which is still too high. In Australia, I think it's 0.4%. But that's from 20% to 4% in my lifetime. Again, sensational. Smallpox has been eradicated. We are that close to eradicating wild polio. And no one back, they were terrible diseases when I was a young boy. No one at that stage thought, would have thought either of those things would happen. So, we've, so first reason why I'm up to, we've done, Difficult things in the past, in the recent past, I suspect climate change is not much more difficult, perhaps not even more difficult than any of those. Second reason is we've developed tools, meteorologists and, and climate scientists particularly, to help us handle some of these fluctuations and some of the problems. And one example is a tropical cyclone hit the area we now call Bangladesh in 1970, 50-odd years ago. It killed 300,000 people. If that cyclone hit Bangladesh tomorrow, there would be some deaths, absolutely. It's a flat country. It's difficult to do anything, but they would get much more warning. 
because of much better observations of tropical cyclones, much better forecast models, but also some simple adaptations so that people can evacuate vertically. It's a very flat country, so if you build concrete bunkers that are about three floors up, you can avoid being affected by the storm surge. So it would still have dire consequences, but you're not going to have 300,000 people die. Heat waves is another thing. Heat waves kill lots of people, and they're, they're, they're always underestimated how many people are killed in heat waves, many more people. Like 500 people died in a heat wave in 2009 in, Victor in southeast Australia, but weekend before Black Saturday, before the fires, the fires killed 174. The heat wave the weekend before killed 500 people. So they kill a lot of people, but nearly every major city in the world now has a heat wave alert system, and we know they save lives. So if the same heat wave hit now, probably only a third of the, the mortality. Again, too much, and we, we're thinking there are ways you can actually even reduce that even more. So there are systems now in place, better weather forecasts, better climate forecasts that help us deal with some of the stuff which is going to hit us. Third thing is we are dealing, we are starting to deal. It may not feel like it because the progress is very slow, um, but we are starting to deal with emissions. So emissions are lower than we would, could have expected 40 or 50 years ago by now. So they were going exponentially at that stage and it's not as bad now. So it is slowing a bit. And one of the big drivers of that, two, there are two big drivers. One is population growth is, is starting to slow. And so that will take a lot of pressure off our systems. And what's called carbon intensity, the amount of carbon dioxide you produce for every dollar of GDP, that's halved in the last 50 years and will continue to halve as renewables come on. The International Energy Agency, IEA, just a couple of days ago, predicted that by 2025, two years hence, renewables will produce more electricity than coal. And I couldn't have predicted that 10 years ago, possibly not even five years ago, perhaps not even two years ago, but they're confident. And it's because the price of solar PV, for instance, used to be 10 years ago, it was three times more expensive than coal to produce power. It's now half the cost of coal. So the economics are, are there. And there's also, so that's three reasons. Fourth reason is this is a global movement now. So it's very hard to find someone who, back in the old days, we used to call them climate denier. Very few who don't accept that we have some influence on what we're doing with this, with this global heating um, and that we need to do something about it. People like Greta Thunberg, for instance, had major difference compared to nerdy scientists naively thinking that all we have to do is write these facts down and give them to politicians and everything will be terrific. It's not happened, but the, uh, the involvement of young activists and older activists as well um, and across society has made a big, big difference. So, so for those four reasons, I, I'm optimistic. I think it can be done. I think it has to be done. Yeah, so I'm reasonably confident, and I wouldn't have said that five years ago, but I am now. I think the tide has turned. Please join me in a very warm thank you for Neville Nichols. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
To follow the program online, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To visit the 100 Climate Conversations exhibition or to join us for a live recording, go to 100climateconversations.com. Records of this conversation will form a new climate change archive preserved for future generations in the Powerhouse Collection, which has over 500,000 objects that tell the stories of our time. See more from the museum at Powerhouse on Twitter and at Powerhouse Museum on Instagram and Facebook.